You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Jesus rose from the dead, he disguised himself and took a walk with some of his disciples. Along the way, these disciples expressed their grief over Jesus' crucifixion. They really thought he would be the one to redeem Israel, but a dead man can't do that. In their opinion, all the hope they put in Jesus had failed, and the world was exactly the same as it had always been. But that wasn't the way Jesus himself saw it. While keeping his identity hidden from these disciples, he began to interpret to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, starting with Moses and the prophets. The cross was not an accident. The cross was not the end. The cross was all a part of God's grand plan. Crucifixion wasn't a problem, it was a solution. Israel hadn't missed out on redemption because of Jesus' death. Israel had been redeemed because of Jesus' death. The Old Testament is rich with prophetic declarations about a man that would fix humanity. And the New Testament is rich with various aspects, angles, and details about how Jesus fulfilled those prophetic declarations. All of the perspectives get muddled down in modern Christianity to one core idea. Jesus died on the cross, and if we follow him, we'll go on to eternal life. Why did the cross do that? Well, many Christians seem unsure as to how to answer that question entirely. I mean, yeah, we understand the basic gist that Jesus took on all our sin at the cross and died for us so so that we don't have to. But when we're pressed for more information as to why his particular death changed the world, we don't always have an answer. We often just respond, well, because Jesus was God. (laughs) This, of course, is correct, uh, but it's a bit shallow in the light of what Moses and the prophets had to say. And Jesus looks to them to explain what he did in life and death. The earliest prophecy of Jesus is found, believe it or not, in Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve had sinned against God by choosing to follow Satan, this rebellious serpent-like cherubim of the Garden of Eden that we talked about last time, After humanity decided to follow him, God declared a prophetic declaration over the serpent. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So yes, at the very beginning of scripture, there is a prophetic declaration about Jesus. Because of humanity's sin, life will be hard, sin will be prevalent, and humanity will now experience death. 
on top of that, the, the supernatural serpent and all the supernatural beings that follow him will constantly be at odds with humanity. But one day, God will raise up not just any kind of hero, but specifically a human hero who will repair the problem of human sin. Though Eve had taken part in the degradation of God's grand framework, God in His grace has ensured her that one day, one of her descendants would take care of the snake that is Satan once and for all. As scholar K.A. Matthews states, the serpent was instrumental in undoing, in the undoing of the woman. And in turn, the woman will ultimately bring down the serpent through her offspring. So, by God's own declaration, a human problem will be solved by a human. But what kind of human would it take to destroy a supernatural being who holds the power of sin and death? Well, one form of logic would go like this. If humanity must now die because of their sin, then it would take a sinless human not deserving death to come about. Some human would have to live out the true image of God and be untainted by sin in order to fix the problem. Other Bible stories continue to describe this human, this descendant of Eve that will destroy the snake. More narrowly, he will be a descendant of the line of Abraham, in which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Even more narrowly, he will be a Holy Spirit-infused kingly descendant of the line of David. The Bible is clear, a human hero will eventually come. Now surely this was hard to believe, because no matter what humanity did, they all continually struggled with sin. Sin had so corrupted them that every last human was a failure when it came to living out true humanity and being a full image of God. Even the ones who image God well often made atrocious mistakes. Billions upon billions of lives have proved over thousands upon thousands of years that humanity cannot save itself. We know this. God knows this. And so at best, it seems like God is going to have to make some sacrifices and choose a decent, mediocre human because Clearly, there's, there's no perfect one on the way. But then Jesus, who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, steps into time to do what only he can do and fulfill the prophecies once and for all. Yes, Jesus is fully man. He was born. He had friends and siblings. He had parents. He obeyed, he grew and learned, asked questions, didn't know a few things. He fasted and was hungry, he, he was tempted. He worked a job, he paid taxes, he celebrated holidays, he got angry and frustrated, he was troubled in soul and spirit, cried and was sorrowful. He had friends die and go back on their word. He was mocked, he was rejected, 
denied, betrayed, abandoned, and even felt abandoned by God. And ultimately, Jesus died. Jesus' humanity was as full and complete as any one of us. But unlike us, Jesus could be the one true human we could never live up to be. Because he was also more than human. He was God in human form. In other words, he had emptied his human body of any godlike powers that conflicted with humanity, but maintained his personhood and identity as God while doing so. He was the answer to the problem. He was the one Eve and Abraham and David were pointing to. He was the one true human imager of God. Jesus himself screams out about the importance that he is a human. While demons often like to draw attention to Jesus' identity as the Son of God, Jesus' favorite nickname for himself was the Son of Man. Why? Well, it's because humanity is waiting for a Son of Man to come and fix them. They're, they're waiting for a human, and not just any human, but THE human. A, a Son of Man that will come along and redeem them. And so every time Jesus declares his identity as a son of man, he's wielding a prophetic declaration over himself. The one true image of God in human form has arrived. So follow me and my kingdom and find your redemption. In the Gospel of John, it seems Jesus further alludes to his identity as this human by occasionally calling his mother by the seemingly disrespectful title, woman. <laughs> But perhaps Jesus means no disrespect by calling his mother woman. Rather, he may actually mean it as an allusion back to Genesis 3.15. One day, the woman will give rise to a human descendant that will fix the world. Mary is that woman, and he is that son of man. Eve has finally given rise to the human descendant that will stomp on the snake. Though Jesus' declaration of himself as the Son of Man would also make his audience's ears perk up in another way. For, for Daniel had a dream about one like a Son of Man that would ride on the clouds, like God himself was known to do, up into God's throne room. Once there, he would be brought before God and God would bestow upon this human-like God person eternal reign over all things. Then, this human-like God person would go on to share his reign with the people of his kingdom. This is a powerful and confusing prophetic image. And with this image in mind, it's not shocking at all that the high priest declared that Jesus must be killed right after Jesus said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. See, in that moment, Jesus had claimed to be Daniel's human-like God person. And that fell on the high priest's ears as the worst kind of blasphemy. This man in front of them, this Jesus, just claimed to be God. And though he was, 
They didn't know that. <laughs> so they decided that Jesus must be crucified. But that crucifixion was all a part of the plan. No one saw it coming, and not the religious people, not the disciples, not even the spiritual beings who, who, who set a trap of crucifixion in place. It was all a divine setup by God. Though that didn't mean that death would be easy, for again, Jesus was human. Uh, the temptation to find another way was still very real. So real that, that Jesus sweat something like great drops of blood while trying to overcome the temptation to flee from death and, and gain power over the world in some other kind of way than the cross. And keep in mind that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Satan had offered Jesus a different way to gain power over the world. Surely that temptation floated through his mind once or twice while praying in the garden. See, if we're paying close attention, we'll recognize that the same test of the Garden of Eden is now before Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Will he listen to God or to a snake? Will he follow God's wisdom or Satan's? In that moment, he chooses the cross, the, the secret and hidden wisdom of God. And in doing so, he overcomes perhaps the greatest of all the temptations he's ever faced. And by the time he dies, he has not only beat one of his greatest temptations, but all the temptations he faced along the way. For as Hebrews 4.15 tells us, Jesus, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And because Jesus was without sin, that means that Satan overstepped his bounds when he entered into Judas and set the crucifixion into play with the help of other principalities and powers. Satan overstepped his bounds when he killed the one true human imager of God, because such an imager is not guilty of death. I, I love to imagine the moment where Satan found out that the, cru the, the crucifixion was a, a part of the plan all along and, and that God had just played him. I mean, Satan had thousands of years to dwell on what a human might do to overthrow him so that he could try to stop it from happening. And yet he accidentally helped bring about the moment. God simply spoke his language. Hey, uh, you love death and destruction, right? Uh, why don't you try death and destruction out on me? The desire that Satan had to destroy the Son of God was too great for him to recognize what he was doing. His desire for destruction turned in upon itself, as such a cycle of destruction always does. In dying, Jesus goes to Satan, who holds the power of death, takes his power from him, and is then resurrected into heaven to take his throne of everlasting dominion. And as he does this, the Son of Man fulfills ancient prophecy he wins the battle against Satan, and he begins his reign. And now, before bringing about the end of this age by installing his eternal reign on the earth in its fullest form, he first pauses to see how many humans will accept his invitation to join his eternal kingdom. That's the Great Commission. 
And while he waits for an answer, the serpent lashes out against God's people in fury, like one who's just had his head stomped on. When people first come to understand the view I just laid out, they sometimes use it to cancel out other views of the cross, and including substitutionary atonement. You know, the, this idea that, that Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins so that we can be forgiven and go on to eternal life. Many have wanted to remove the guilt of Jesus having to die for them, or have wanted to remove a narrative where a father asks his son to die, and so they replace substitutionary atonement with what we've just talked about. But that's not how the cross works. There are so many things that happen on the cross that when the New Testament writers look at it, each of them finds themselves directed by the Holy Spirit to expound upon Jesus' death in a different light. Jesus overcoming the powers does not mean substitutionary atonement is not true. That theme is actually very straightforward throughout the New Testament. It's found very obviously in all the Passover themes that surround the cross. While I understand the complication that a father would ask his son to die, we need to remember the true biblical perspective here. Jesus is God in flesh, and therefore, God is really requiring himself to go through with the cross. And Jesus did much more through his life and death than just these two views alone. Uh, not only did he overcome the enemy and free us from death and save us from our sins, but he fulfilled God's promise to Abraham that his line would bless all the nations. For Jesus extended his eternal kingdom to the people of every nation, race, and language. Uh, the gates of heaven have been opened and every human being is now invited to give their allegiance to the one true human imager and his kingdom. And as a descendant of David, Jesus has ensured that David's throne will be established forever. With an eternal resurrected body, Jesus has taken the eternal throne in heaven that was reserved for that human-like God person. And, and all the people who give their allegiance to Jesus' kingdom, regardless of what kingdom they were allegiant to before, they are all adopted into his one kingdom as children of God. We certainly could go on to, to see more of the ways in which Jesus changed the world in life, death, and resurrection, but that would take mm, a lot longer for us to talk about. Um, though we'll continue to see more of these aspects as we continue our journey in this series. But for now, this is a start to show us that in Jesus, God's grand framework will be restored and eventually respected entirely. Without Jesus, the world and all who live in it are destined for destruction. But with him, we have hope that all will be right again.